Turn with me, please, to Exodus chapter 20. We're primarily going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 20. And while you're turning there, while I turn there, last time I preached, we talked about the first commandment. And in our youth group, I've been going over the Ten Commandments with our, with the, our teens. Does the Ten Commandments apply to us today? If they do, how do they apply to our lives? And today, we're going to do the same thing, but with the second commandment. Um, And on the topic of worship, worship just means honor paid to a superior being. It's a totally, um, it's a word that isn't designated for God. It's used of when people worship idols, false gods, and it's used of worshiping the one true God. It's a totally neutral word. But worship just means honor paid to a superior being. That superior being, in your mind, could even be you. Um, This week, right, we're going to look at the second commandment, which builds on the first. Number one, we should not worship false gods. Right? Number two... Now that we have the one true God, we must not worship the one true God in an unworthy manner. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments. And so... As I said, number two builds on number one. Think of it this way. God would never forbid us from doing anything that would benefit us, right? God wouldn't forbid me from doing something good. So when God forbids us from doing something, we should take it seriously, right? Because it's for our good. Um, So now, to help illustrate the second commandment, go to Exodus chapter 32. Right, God gives the commandments in chapter 20. Only 12 chapters later, what could possibly go wrong, right? Well, let's find out. And while you turn there, again, Ten Commandments, the foundation on which God would build His nation, Israel. Right? These commandments reflect the unchanging character of God. So they, like God, are eternal, timeless, universally applicable and unchanging. First of all, these commands help people in any age recognize their imperfections. Right? It's in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by what? Not by works of the law, but by faith. So the law, first of all, serves to convict us of sin and convince us of our need for mercy and graciously lead us to Christ like children through his forgiveness of sin. Secondly, right, the law shows us our duty 
as those who have been justified by faith. The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And then the gospel sends us again to the law to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. Let me say that again. The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us again to the law to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Remember, what I talked about last time, we need two wings of an airplane to fly, right? You can't just use one. You need law and you need love to soar as God intended. Right? And... As Christians, we're not meant to try to figure out on our own what love is. The law is our guidance for how to love. So, Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1, let's read together. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods, that, we sh- that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the, t- the Ten Commandments, right? And uh, written on the tablets. And as he's up there, the people are kind of lost without him. So they go to Aaron, his brother, the appointed priest, his right-hand man. Surely Aaron will make the right decision, right? Verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. A little weird, but let's read on. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Uh-oh. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, surely he must have realized the trouble he just made. Verse 5, So when Aaron saw it, He built an altar before it. And Aaron made and proclaimed and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they arose arose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, while Moses was experiencing spiritual triumph, the people of Israel... We're experiencing a new all-time low. 
I mean, God wouldn't even claim them. He said, the peop- your people who you brought out of Egypt. <laughs> the plagues of deliverance out of Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea. Manna from heaven. Repeatedly, God demonstrated His power, His goodness, and His compassion to the Israelites. But over and over again, they reacted how? Grumbling, complaining, and rebellion. Now, we don't know what's happened to Moses, they said to Aaron. He's somewhere up there, so make us a God. Make us a visible, tangible object to follow. And instead of reprimanding them for their impatience and disobedience, what does Aaron do? He took their gold earrings and molded it into a calf. Then when he's done, he hears the people explain, exclaim, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, seriously, we might have expected him to shut things down, saying, Whoa, 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 guys. We, we, we made a big mistake. We, we got this all wrong. But instead, he deepens the problem by building an altar in front of the calf and announcing plans for a festival to the Lord. I mean, what on earth are you doing, Aaron? I mean, I, I can't wrap my, my mind around what he's doing. At best, right, at best, he was being naive, right? Maybe he's thinking, well, you see, God, I thought it would be a good teaching aid for the children. I thought, well, you see, the image, it just makes me feel closer to God. Maybe he thought something like that, at best. But the truth is, the golden calf did not display God's glory, and it did everything to distort it. And when I see, um, and when we get when we get worship wrong, we see that chaos follows. Paul describes in Romans chapter one what happens when we get when we get worship wrong. Let me read to you. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 22. It says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, what did God do? God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful, evil, minded, mindlessness. They are worshippers. They they are whisperers, 
backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And it all started with exchanging the glory of incorruptible God with an image made like corruptible man. So do you see what what I'm saying here? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal beings. And to do that is to become susceptible to the sinful desires of the human heart. And that just issues forth into all types of wickedness and adultery and homosexuality. Every kind of wickedness. So number one, there is one God and only one way to God. That is Christ Jesus. And it is our loving duty to gently yet courageously tell everyone in our circles of life around them. That's, that's number one, the first commandment. No other gods. And number two, we must worship God the way He instructs us to. No idols. No graven images. The Lord does not ever wish to be reduced to an image. Ever. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 15-16 says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure. God didn't appear in any manner resembling any form of anything because He didn't want His people to perceive Him that way. So we do not worship God, even the true God, by reducing Him to some image. We do not worship Him in some self-styled way. God will not be handled in some self-styled, manufactured way that comes out of man's own mind, no matter how good a person's intentions are. Intentions matter, but instruction also matters. Uh, Dan Bauer told me a story once. Uh, He was getting ready for his sister's wedding, right? And so his dad instructed him and your brother, right, to wash wash his car. It's nice, pretty... Chevy Cavalier, right? And uh, all the good intentions. Obey the Father, make the car shimmer and shine for his sister's wedding. But, you see, when they went to wash the cars, they failed to read the instructions on the label. Because if they had, they would have realized that it was, in fact, paint remover, not soap that they were using on the cars. So, man, they were scrubbing that stuff in there. It had a nice, shiny car on the label. There was a sponge already in it. They were ready to go. And then their dad walked in and said, what in the world are you doing? And so, yeah, needless to say, you can imagine what happened to that poor car. The intentions of your heart matter, right? They do matter. You cannot worship God with deceitful intentions. But if you don't follow the instructions, you get disaster. So, let's apply this. Let's apply this. 
What does God want from His second commandment? That we in no way make an image of God nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. That's number one. Number two, can we make an image? Should I drop out of, you know, any image? Should I drop out of my ceramic class? Those of you doodling in the corner of your notebooks right now, should I stop? The point is God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Anything else can be portrayed, yet God forbids the making or having such images if your intention is to worship or serve God through them. So you can, you, you know, you can make your little pottery of your, you know, snowman or whatever. You can use the, your creative abilities that God has blessed you with to paint, to draw. However, but if your intention is to worship or serve it or God through it, it's off, it's off, that's off the table. Number three, can we use images of God as teaching aids? And from what I've read so far, right? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants Christians to be taught by the reading and preaching of His Word, not by idols that can't even talk. Which brings me to number four. (laughs) Well, yeah, number four. God has provided the only true and worthy image of Himself in the Lord Jesus, who, as Colossians 1.5 says, is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the only worthy image of God. Christ said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Christ is the only image we have. It's the only thing in Scripture that we have. It's the only thing. Imagination is a wonderful gift, but when we use it to conjure up our own image of God, it leads us astray. Our view of God should only be defined by His revealing of Himself in the Bible. Do not look for God in shrines or sculptures, paintings or portraits. I can imagine the Lord might might say, I'm not there. Look for me in my word. Think of Christ this way. Christ was before all creation. All time. He is over all creation in authority. John 3.16, right when, when Franklin Graham was sharing that in the beginning of the video, what did it say? It said Christ was God's only begotten Son. That word only, monogenes, however you pronounce it, means, this is what this means. The word only means only of his kind. He's one of a kind. Christ is superior over all things. And so, Christ is the only, only image of God that we can go by. Christ is the only one. Now, I don't want to stop with just the negative part. No other idols, no other graven images. Right? Because to every negative in the Ten Commandments, no other gods, no other graven images, do not take the name of the Lord your vain. Uh, 
there is a positive side. Right? So, number one, no other gods. Number two, no carved images. The positive number one is there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And the positive side to number two is there is true worship. God seeks true worshipers, right? So worship in the Christian context means essentially giving honor and respect to God. That's what worship means. Giving honor and respect to God. The superior being. And we are tempted to think that worship is an event. It's something that takes place in certain buildings at certain times. But it's not. In 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, don't get me wrong. What we do here on Sunday mornings is nothing but worship. We gather each Sunday in accordance to the pattern set before us in God's Word, right? When we, when we, when we are completely able-bodied and yet reject the pattern God has set before us to gather, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, we, we reject that. When we reject that pattern, that's the opposite of worship. So here on Sundays, when, the te- when teachers teach, right, when the praise team sings, when the musicians play, when the sermon is preached, communion is taken, when prayer is made, all these are worship. And they are to stimulate you to worship God as well. If you, this is so important, if you have anything less than worship in your mind when you come here on a Sunday morning, you've missed the point of what we're doing here. If you come to church for what you can get out of the music or what you can get out of the sermon or what kind of blessing you can get out of it, you've missed the point because you can hear a million better sermons online. You can... Yeah, the music here is great. But uh, the, the, the sermons, you can find them. Sermon applications and the stirring music in your soul and the blessing of communion with God and your brothers and sisters in Christ is a beautiful byproduct of worship. But we are here right now to worship. Also, our objective on Sunday mornings is not to make outsiders comfortable. It's not. Our objective is to worship God in such a way that they look at us and say, surely God is in this place. That's our objective. And that shouldn't stop in this building on noon on Sundays. There are occasions, right, when reaching our unsaved loved ones or, or friends that we seek to remove unnecessary hurdles for them to hear the gospel. But that's not our focus. That should not be our focus here or anywhere. Alistair Begg says it this way, the unbeliever should find him or herself stirred to ask, why do these people sing with such enthusiasm? Why do they listen with such care? Why do they speak to God with such devotion? What is it about me that I have no such appetite for God and His Word? That's what they should see in us as we worship. So whatever you do, 
do it in worship to God, to honor His name. And so, with all that in mind, do you guys see how making of the form of an image or any kind to represent God, do you realize how silly that is? That completely misses the point. We do not worship God, even the true God, by reducing Him to some image. God will not be handled in some self-styled way, manufactured, that comes out of man's own mind, no matter how good a person's intentions are. One last thing and I'm done. Back in Exodus chapter 20, right? I focused in on that first verse, you shall not make for yourselves carved images, right? verse 4. But then, verse 5 and 6 come. Right, it says, you shall not bow down to them nor, make, make, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. There's a serious warning here. Now, in Ezekiel 18.20, remember that, mark that, Ezekiel 18.20, God declares He does not punish the innocent for another person's offense. You're the guilty party, you're the one being punished. So what does that mean here? When we disobey God, what this is saying. This is not a pronouncement of judgment on children, but a word of warning for parents. Fathers and mothers are here called to count the cost their sin will have on their families. When we disobey God, we do not do it in isolation. One generation turns their back on God and the next generation grows up without Him. All sin has a domino effect. And parents, please hear this. You should think about the consequences that your children will face for your sin. There is no wiggling out of it. The facts stare us in the face. None of us can look into the mirror of God's law and feel good about ourselves. Not if we're honest, anyways. Along with everyone else, we are accountable to God. His holy standard makes us painfully aware of the fact that we are lawbreakers. Right? That's the first job of the, of the law, is to show us our need for God. But then the second part, it shows us our duty as Christians. And you cannot truly worship God unless you are born again. See, the gravity of our situation is brought home to us when we think of the length to which God went in order to rescue us. What did God do to rescue us? How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How deep the pain of searing loss. The Father turned His face away. 
as wounds which mar the chosen one, bring many sons to glory. This second commandment ends with God saying, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The Father sent His Son to save, to seek, to make true worshipers, and to hold them for all eternity. If we could gain it on our own, we could lose it. We cannot gain it on our own. Christ sealed us forever. And, you know, if you are convicted, as a parent, saying, man, I have sinned. And, yes, my children will pay the consequences. You know, if, if you teach your kids God's Word, and you teach them the Ten Commandments, and you hold them to a standard outside of yourselves, it's only a matter of time before they point out in your life where you messed up. You know what you do? You say, you're right. I was wrong. Forgive me. That's the best thing you can do for your children. Show them the grace and the mercy that God can extend. And as far as the east is from the west, God puts your sins away and remembers them no more. But with showing mercy to thousands, the Father sent His Son to save and to hold for eternity.